So I am here with Ken Wilber, Megapandit, to have a, a long-awaited discussion on Unique Self. Ken, you and I have been talking about this on and off, um, intermittently and at times intensely, I think since 2004 or something like that, somewhere a little bit after the first Integral Spiritual Center. We kind of started the conversation, had a whole series of them, and there was the second Integral Spiritual Center where, at your invitation, actually presented on the kind of you know, soul print slash unique self, and, you know, we've evolved it together, you know, much over the last almost decade, and the book finally got written. Right. We did actually, uh, um, you know, just to share the general context with people and then to kind of dive into unique self itself, you know, it's not it's not a, a casual conversation. It's not a kind of a book. It's kind of a larger cultural project, and so there's, you know, a couple of academic volumes, which are kind of unique self and non-dual humanism. They're coming out through Integral Publishing. And then we did a scholarly journal, in Journal of Integral Theory and Practice, with a bunch of articles on an academic perspective. We did an Integral Spiritual Experience Conference, you know, the first one, which was on unique self. And this all really emerges from really, you know, and Ken, I'll talk about you in the third person for a second, you know, from Ken's vision of the Integral Spiritual Center, in which different people who were lineage holders would come with, you know, the particular places where their lineages had something, you know, excelled, you know, had some okay. really particularly gorgeous, you know, insight, and then in meeting with the integral framework, you know, in a kind of psychoactive way, would, you know, emerge those ideas. And I think uh, you're really one of the primary emergence, you know, from that period is what we called, uh, you know, in, you know, the integral journal of integral theory and practice, you know, uh, the evolutionary emergence of unique self, a new chapter in integral theory, which really emerges from, from this conversation over the years. And, of course, there's been many other people who participated. But at the core, it's the meeting of the unfolding of this lineage, you know, my own first-person, you know, engagement with it and thinking about it and writing about it for 20 years and our series of really dharmic conversations, which, you know, many, many over the years, which produced this unique self, which in itself is kind of becoming psychoactive, you know, in other words, lots right. of people are kind of recognizing and it's, it's fighting its way really to the, to the entire enlightenment world. You know, I just get feedback all the time, how right. it's reshaping the conversation. And so it's just a pleasure to be in this conversation with you today. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Um, well, we can jump in. Um, there are um, uh, some people that aren't familiar with the concept and um, aren't sure exactly what it means or or why it, it's significant. So What's let me there? briefly, by way of background, say that virtually all of the world's great traditions have the concept that the human being has at least two selves. And just as there are, there's the two truth doctrine, there's absolute truth and there's relative truth. So there is an absolute self and there is a relative self. And the relative self is finite and conventional and mortal and um, is born and will die and is identified with the individual organism. And it's a necessary self. It's the self that negotiates the manifest realm. And so the idea is not to get rid of it, 
um, for the traditions, the idea is to plug it into its true self, into its ground, into the absolute self, so that you are then, in a sense, living on both sides of the street. You have a foot in the relative finite manifest world, and you have a foot in the infinite, uh, unqualifiable, unborn, undying, absolute uh self and realm and the the um, discovery of that self liberated absolute self is the traditional goal and aim of the contemplative traditions and the discovery of that self constitutes um, liberation or enlightenment or awakening and it it's a profound shift and profoundly noticeable in the human being because among many 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 things that could be listed first of all what happens is that as Zen puts it body mind drops meaning that your identity is no longer confined to what Alan Watts used to call the skin encapsulated ego. Mm -hmm. It's not confined to just this individual organism that was born, lives a while, and then croaks. Um, but rather, it's an identity that spills out of the individual organism and is identified with the one true self. And there is just one true self and it's the self not only of every sentient being of every individual um, the self of every worm deer gorilla chimpanzee and human it's the self of the cosmos and giraffe it's a <laughs> <laughs> and so and the the traditions generally um, then, in a sense, leave it there with, with the notion that there is just this one self and the discovery of this one self, because it's the self of everything that, that is, means that you also find that your identity is now one with everything that is. You no longer see a mountain. You are that mountain. You no longer feel the rain. You are the rain. You no longer touch the earth. You are the earth. And because all of this is a manifestation of spirit, right. which is your own true, divine, absolute self. Right. And so there, there's um, several implications uh, of that. And one of the most immediate is that therefore the one true self is is impersonal right there's just nothing personal about it there's just nothing um individual or or unique um about it that it's it's simply um oneself and oneself only and that oneself is one with the absolute Right. By whatever 
terminology one wishes is one with Godhead, one with Brahman, one with Allah, one with the Tao, and that that realization of that supreme identity is the supreme summum bone of human existence to discover one's genuine and true self. Now, the 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 problem with that, and I always use just an extremely simplistic way of getting this this point across, is we can have, let's say, four people sitting around a table, and all four are enlightened in the traditional sense. That is to say, all four have not only their relative conventional self, and it's in fine working shape and it's um, conversing and so on, but all four are awakened to the one true self. And so all four of them have, in, in, in the very core of their being, this same identical absolute self. And they're sitting around this table... And even if there is only one true self, there's one thing that's different in all four of these people. And that is, namely, that one true self is looking at that table from a different angle. That even though all four of these people are 100% aware of emptiness or 100% aware of the abyss or 100% in touch with true self. It's, it's, uh, it's one self, but in each of these individuals, it has a different perspective. Right. So as this one true self comes out of the unmanifest condition. Mm-hmm. where there is indeed one self. But as soon as it manifests at all, as soon as it starts to perceive a world at all, as soon as it emanates a world at all, then it's doing so differently through every pair of eyes in every sentient being alive. So while it's true that just as every sentient being shares one spirit, they also share one self, but that self is unique and uniquely expressed in each of them because that one self is going to see the world from a different angle in every single case. And the only way that my unique self could see and be identical to your unique self is if my physical body somehow overlapped perfectly with your physical body and we were both looking through the same two eyes and we both had the same brain and we both had the same conventional self. And that's everything that's different. Right. And ultimate reality is the non-duality of emptiness and form. Or we could say the non-duality of true self and conventional self. And so true self plus perspective is the unique self. 
every individual is going to have that combination, is going to have that non-duality that includes both a true self and a uh, conventional self. And that gives to the true self in every individual a unique flavoring, a unique uh, a dimension of it is unique and is to be found in no other human being or no other sentient being at all. And so that changes the well everything. Changes everything. No, those it changes are, everything. Yeah, and maybe let's 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 bracket. Let's, that's a fantastic introduction. Is this a good place just to jump in? Yep. And yeah, and to kind of that changes everything, and we'll we'll spend some real time on really what that changes and why that why that's so significant. Yep. Yeah. I want to pick up, you know, on a couple of points and the conversation. Just sharing with everyone listening, this is a conversation Ken and I have had many, many, many times, and it deepens every time. And I want to kind of just start with a little bit of a kind of, you know, intellectual history, if you will, on the conversation. And in the footnotes of Unique Self, there's a lot of the uh, in the first couple of chapters. I actually reproduced some of our early letters and. You know, a lot of the early conversation and how we kind of, you know, fell into this piece of the conversation, particularly about perspectives. And I want to I want to share here just a very beautiful idea in the pre-modern lineages. And Ken and I had a long conversation about this in 2004 and wrote long letters back and forth about this particular topic, which is this idea of perspective. And let me take it into a lineage and then out of a lineage and back into our conversation. So when you look at a text, a sacred text. So there's two ways to look at it. One is it's an object. It's a third-person object of sacredness. And the second way to look at it is is that it's both a first, second, and third-person expression. It has different faces, and it's a living organism of ultimate reality expressed in a text. Right. If you look at it the second way, and Walter Benjamin and Gershom Shalom and, you know, Derrida, you know, talks about this and, my thesis advisor, Moshe Edel, who Ken, you and I did a couple of dialogues with, yep. you know, is in this conversation in a deep way. If you look at it in this latter way, then you have this very, very interesting thing that comes up. Well, if the text is, as they call it, the living God, let's call it that way, in its ultimate you know, non-dual expression, well, how could it be that there are different expressions of what the text means? So where does conflict come from in a text? So one approach to that is a kind of, well, people don't fully understand the text because they're looking at it through their distorted, separate self egoic structure. And so, since, and since we can't really resolve easily who's right, so we'll engage a kind of methodological pluralism, right, to allow for a polarity of opinions. And that's one major stream. But a second stream that exists in the kind of Hebrew lineage wisdom sources that I was attracted to some 25 years ago Right, is that actually there's not a methodological pluralism, there's an ontological pluralism. And for those of you listening saying, what the, what, let me just make that much clearer, what that means is, is that actually that text is seen through my irreducible uniqueness. My unique perspective on the text, what they call their shivim panim la Torah, there are 70 perspectives on the text, and 70 is just a kind of, you know, a kind of, you know, abstract word that we use kind of casually. The idea of basically 70 perspectives, what we mean is, is that actually the text is refracted through the prism of a perspective. And if that's the case, 
that means that the way I look at the text and the way the actual ancient sources say it, they say I'm sitting at a different angle in relationship to Mount Sinai, which is the mythic image of Revelation, and my angle actually expresses a different dimension right, of the infinite. So the infinite, or true self, the way we're using it here, is refracted through the prism of perspective, which itself creates new Torah, or new God, or new essence. Right. And that really, that really gives birth to, I mean, the way your brilliant formulation is true self, right, infinite essence, plus perspective, right, which where I kind of brought it into the conversation, the perspective on a text, creates unique self, which is, it's called in the tradition, your unique letter in the cosmic scroll, which is your irreducible unique self. So that's, that's you know, it's just, just to kind of, I want to just share with people how kind of the modern notion of perspectives, which, you know, is placed front and center, which didn't exist in the pre-modern tradition, then right. builds on this pre-modern idea, right, you know, in a textual tradition of being able to create, as it were, new God. And it's actually called Tikkun Hashem, best translated by the best scholar I know in this as the evolution of God. You're actually creating something new in the world through your irreducible uniqueness, your unique letter in the cosmic scroll, i.e. your unique self, which didn't exist before, right? Which, right. Is, which is not only fascinating, but changes everything. It's empowering in a kind of radical degree because, you know, when you want to know why to get up in the morning, right, you know, you know your existential crisis is actually solved. And that's your unique self, right, which is the unique perspective you have on reality, right, creates in its wake, right, a unique set of gifts, proclivities, right, you know, offerings to the world, which in turn, you know, part four, create your unique responsibility, your unique ability to respond to reality, and your unique obligation. And so, in that sense, it just, it just completely changes the game, and perspective becomes, right, and we understand it both in terms of postmodernity, and this is where postmodernity and premodernity meet in this integral embrace. Your perspective is irreducible. It's unavoidable, right? There's no way you can find your way out of it, Ramana Maharshi had a perspective. Ken Wilber yeah, had a perspective. Exactly. Every, every sentient being, well, at, at Leibniz says every monad has a different perspective because they, they can't be superimposed on, on one another. And yeah. therefore, they always occupy a different place in space-time, and therefore they'll always be seeing the universe from a different angle. Right, right. And that, that's just the physical right. kind of kind of location of uh, um the same is, is 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 true for for the uh, for the other dimensions as well but one of the important in a sense shifts to some degree is that in in many cases in the pre-modern traditions um where you you find something like an emphasis on each person is a different letter right. in the overall alphabet, the divine alphabet. We have to be careful about that because right. we we want to avoid pantheism. That's right. Which is that just the sum total of the alphabet is spirit, and you are simply one slice of spirit. And that's just not true. You are still 100% spirit. You're all of every, every single 
sentient being, every point of manifestation is still 100% spirit. And so it's, it's still 100% spirit. It's still one spirit. It's still one true self. But it's looking through a different perspective and therefore is seeing as manifesting, as bringing forth different aspects of the manifest realm. And in that sense, different aspects of spirit's glory and different ornaments of, of spirit's own Wonder. manifest creativity. Right. Right. Um, but there, it's still a 100% identity. And, and it's not a pantheistic, oh, you have a different perspective because you're just a different slice of the cosmic pie. No, right. you have a different perspective because you are 100% of the cosmic pie and you're occupying a different location in the manifold world and therefore you're seeing that right. from a different angle and that's precisely what we call unique self and why we distinguish between unique self and soul because exactly soul, soul right soul is basically a, a a spiritual expression of separate self so you're a separate self right? that's right you know, you're, you're you're a slice and as a separate self you know you have the spiritual dimension which is called your soul now that's a right. very beautiful theistic conception but it emerges from a theism which basically views the world, if I could kind of make it in graphic terms, Ken, let's say two circles, two separate circles, which now have to relate to each other. And so religion becomes, you know, how do you, what is the line of connection, the trajectory between those two separate circles? Unique right. self, right, emerges from a complete different image, right? The, the image is there's one circle, which is all that is. You know, right. In that circle, if you will, is, let's say, a triangle, which has the illusion, right, of being separate. But actually, when it awakens and self-liberates, it realizes, oh, I'm actually completely identical with this whole circle, which is me, lives in me, as me, and through me. And my perspective, my essence, right, is irreducibly unique because, right, when I manifest, right, I express myself, right, through this ultimately and infinitely unique perspective, right? And that distinction is essential, which is why, you know, in the, in the original book in Soul Prince, you know, I moved back and forth between these two conceptions, just like in the original sources of Luria, for example, one letter in the cosmic scroll sometimes means what I'm calling unique self, and other times means, right, the slice in the alphabet that we're, you know, that is soul. And I myself, you know, writing 15 years ago, you know, right. moved between them as the text did, and as our conversations evolved, what we basically did is we took my second terminology, unique self, and left the soul print terminology behind a decade back just right. because the soul print terminology right, allows for that confusion and unique self right, expresses both of the non-dual realization on the one hand and can be embraced by anyone, you know, whether they're you know, you know, coming from any major tradition, you know, coming from you know, a right. metaphysical place. Right? Unique self is the essential irreducible nature of reality with one important and critical caveat which maybe I'll now just bring into play and then, and then pass back to you, Mega K, which is, although unique self exists all the way up and all the way down, you know, as, as, as integral parlance, right, suggests that, yes. right, at the same time, right, unique self also appears as a distinct level of consciousness, 
which is really what the unique self-work is about, right, spontaneously and as a natural expression of self at the higher levels of consciousness, right, at, you know, what you've referred to graves, right, you know, as a kind of second-tier developmental consciousness. So just like true self is ever always already present, yeah. nonetheless, right, you know, a baby's enlightenment, right, isn't actually, it's pre-personal, but actually the sage who's actually realized their enlightenment, right, is actually awake to their true self. The same thing's true with unique self. You have to awaken to your unique self. It's ever always already present, but it actually emerges as a stable developmental level of consciousness, right, at the higher levels of consciousness in which states and stages meet. So as you're at the higher levels stages or levels of consciousness in your parlance can, right, the higher developmental levels of consciousness, right, which, which I mean, I, for most, for people who don't know who are listening, you know, Ken's distinction, a level of consciousness is a stable structure of developmental consciousness, which is non-passing. Once you achieve it, it doesn't disappear, and Ken will talk more about it. A state is something which is achieved and disappears. It's not a stable level. It's a aha moment. It's a moment of insight. It's a state which then can recede. Unique self emerges from the confluence of state and stage. You, you achieve the state of true self, right? You know, and the higher your stable realization of true self is, the better it is. But you've achieved some state of true self, and unique self emerges. So you're after true self. You're after your post, post-classical enlightenment, post-emptiness. But and, huge and, right? Unique self appears as a stable level of consciousness, you know, post the kind of grave six, post, you know, green, what's called green consciousness, you know, at the higher levels and whatever schema you're using, uniqueness becomes a natural, spontaneous expression of who you are. And the developmentalists that we've talked to over the years, whether it was a dialogue with Suzanne Cook-Reuter or with Don Beck, you know, expressing, you know, Chris Cowan and, you know, and, and Claire Graves' work, all basically, you know, initially were kind of, well, what's this? And then as they went into it, they said, oh, of course. They kind of looked at their data and their own realized that unique self was actually implicit, right, at these second tier, you know, stages of consciousness.